Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have uh, quite a serial founder. I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit on on scaling, you know, building, financing, all of that good stuff. But I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Mike Cagney. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So originally born in Trenton, New Jersey. How was how was life there? Well, I was only there till I was five, so I don't <laughs> I don't remember that much about it other than the slogan for Trenton was what what Trenton makes the world takes, which I always thought was a horrible slogan for a city. <laughs> <laughs> so then you, you moved quite a bit because it was Detroit and then South California. So uh, so tell us a bit about this. Yeah, my my dad was in the steel industry, and so we moved to Detroit. We were there through uh, through uh, thirteen years old, and then uh, he went to McDonnell Douglas in Southern California. And so, you know, I had an experience to live on on the East Coast, in the Midwest, and on the West Coast, and and uh, you know, it was great getting getting all those experiences. So why why did you decide to um, how how did you get into economics and and into all of this good stuff you know around finance? Yeah. So when I was younger, uh, they were talking to us about careers and what career we wanted to pursue. And uh, I looked through all the list of of career opportunities and the uh, securities career was the highest paying one. And I had mistakenly thought that meant literally security. And so I came home and told my dad I wanted to be a security officer. And, and he asked me why. And I said, because you get paid the most money. And he said, I think you're, you're misunderstanding what a securities person does. And so uh, had me talk to one of his friends who was in the financial management space and and understood a lot about the markets and and I just became fascinated with them. I, I, when I was a, a little kid, I, I actually had a futures account and traded hog futures. Uh, you know, obviously in my father's name, but but it gave me my first introduction to the markets, and I've I've become hooked ever since. And so, you know, most everything I do, I try to intersect being you know entrepreneurialism, technology, but also uh, financial markets, macroeconomics. Got it. And obviously, you were uh, right after right after school. You went to to Wells Fargo, uh, and you were there for quite a bit. You were there for six years. So I mean, yep. obviously, you know, you you you're like a really unbelievable entrepreneur. I mean, you've done it many many times. But but what really got you into into maybe like let's talk about corporate America. What did you get out of that, and and how did you start getting that exposure into trading and, and fintech and all of that stuff? Yeah, it was it was a phenomenal experience at Wells. And in my first job at Wells, I, I uh, came in and they put me in a cube and put me in front of a 3270 green screen terminal and 
gave me about six inches of, of COBOL code and Fortran code and said, this is our derivative system. It doesn't work. Try to figure out what's wrong with it. And, and it was actually a, a really interesting experience to be able to dive in and, and figure out how technology was being used for these financial products. And you know, I started pushing pretty hard. I'm, I'm, you know, have an entrepreneurial spirit. And so at that point it was more entrepreneurial, but around the idea of allowing the bank to cut us some, some capital for us to build a uh, derivatives business to do swaps and interest rate caps and floors for our customers rather than laying them off side, you know, back to back with the street. And was able to convince the bank to start off with a very small amount of capital. And we started building that business up and it became very effective and, and generated good profit. And so we had increasing amounts of capital that were applied and, and increasing scope. So we began to handle the hedging for the mortgage book. We began to hedge uh, some of the asset liability for the balance sheet, um, but also you know more and more customer flow. And, and as part of that, we had some uh, leeway to do some proprietary trading as well. So we were able to take positions on our own account and had done extremely well. We were very, you know, luckily positioned through the financial crisis, the Asian currency crisis in 97, the Russian currency crisis in 98. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a great run and it was a, it was a great experience, but what was happening in the late nineties was, uh, internet 1.0. And I remember one of, one of my senior managers at Wells saying anyone with half a brain would leave this bank and go start a company. And, I said, well, I think I have half a brain, so maybe I should leave the bank and go start a company. <laughs> right. And so that was that was my motivation for my first leap out into the entrepreneurial world. So then let's talk about that thing, first rodeo. Yeah, I started a, a, a enterprise wealth management company called Finiplex, and, and one of the first things I learned was the importance of naming. So, so Finiplex is a bovine growth hormone popularly abused in the bodybuilding circuit, but I did not realize that until after I named it Finiplex and got the <laughs> URL. <laughs> Uh, and so I just said, it's kind of like a cow on steroids, I guess. So it, it was an interesting, uh, experience and it, it, I, I learned a lot. And what I first learned, you know, when I started Finiflex, I, I really struggled as a CEO and I was 29 years old. Um, you know, I'd raised uh, $15 million from, from a host of, of very solid investors. And it, it was a little bit of a challenge for me coming out of a trading environment where the motivation for the folks there is, is primarily economic into, you know, an entrepreneurial environment, a startup environment where there, there are a lot of different motivations and reasons why people are engaged in that. And, and I struggled a lot and, you know, I was probably too young to, to take that responsibility on and, and ultimately brought a CEO in to, to replace me. And then, you know, stepped out of that, that both the, the, the oversight and day-to-day -day operational aspect um, we had sold that business to Broadridge, and and on the back of that, I was able to start a hedge fund called Cabazon. Did that in 2006. And you know, as so a fun fact, Cabazon. You know, I'm originally from Spain, and Cabazon it means to be very yes. stubborn. Yeah, and what it means in Latin America is jackass. So once again, <laughs> in the consequence of my naming conventions, uh, I I was talking to some Latin American investors, and the conversation was going very well. But they wanted to ask me something. I could tell there was there was something that was bothering them, and they said, "So, you know, we like you. We like what you're doing. We just want to understand why you called your company jackass." And, and I said, I didn't realize that I had, I thought I called it a fish indigenous to the West coast of California that does have a big head, hence its name. Uh, and, uh, so again, uh, another lesson in trying to pick the right name. Got it. So, um, how different was, for example, like this experience with a hedge fund, you know, with what you were used to with the Fainaplex? Well, it, it was coming back to what I did at Wells, which was, uh, you know, running proprietary trading and, and taking advantage of market cycles and, and, you know, heavy macroeconomics. And so it was, 
it was a good chance for me to kind of re- regroup in terms of what I wanted to do and what was important to me. But, you know, at, at one point, I've been staring at Bloomberg screen for so long and, and you know, we, we traded through the crisis reasonably well. And I'm watching the Bloomberg screen blink over and over, and I feel like I'm losing a, a brain cell every time it flashes at me. And I said, "Look, I need to I need to do something back on the entrepreneurial side." I, you know, it was it didn't work out as well as I wanted it to the first time around. Uh, so I'd like to figure out how to do it again. And the challenge is when you're you know in the day to day operations of a hedge fund, it's hard to to carve out time to pursue an entrepreneurial endeavor. Being an entrepreneur takes takes 100 percent of your time and effort and focus. And so serendipitously, uh, there was a friend of mine that talked to me about a fellowship program at Stanford where you take a year uh, at the graduate school of business, a lot of flexibility in the classes that you take. And I thought it was a great opportunity to you know, try to address some of the areas that, that I needed to work on in terms of, of where I struggled on the Finiplex side, uh, but also find some folks that I could work with to build a, a new kind of entrepreneurial business. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, that experience in Stanford and, and also, you know, you coming and together and putting the band together for the next business. Yeah, it was it was a fascinating experience. Um, yeah, it, it wasn't so much challenging from an academic standpoint because, you know, things like corporate finance and, and statistics and so forth are you know, things that I've been pretty well grounded in leading up to that. Um, it was more the the people there and getting a chance to to work with a, a broad, diverse group of people, you know, tremendously interesting and diverse backgrounds and thinking about, you know, where is there a significant market opportunity? And there was a, a class that we had um, called, I think it was Designing Entrepreneurial Opportunities or, or something along those lines. And, you know, we, it, it was basically your ability to incubate a startup within the graduate school of business. And the, the GSB doesn't like you starting companies at school, but, uh, you know, I think they, they kind of look the other way in, in lots of circumstances. They feel it's going to be something successful. And so we, we had a business plan. And what was interesting was the original business plan was leveraging uh, high quality video on demand. So the idea that you could run a marketplace where I could show you how to change a bike tire, or you could show me how to bake a souffle, right? Whatever it might be, uh, where because of the compression and video, uh, you know, the way the video had advanced at that point, we felt there was a really interesting marketplace for it. And we actually built a proof of concept for it and tested it very early on. And it became immediately apparent that people weren't using it for the intended purposes. And so we we pivoted quickly uh, and decided that we would try to do something uh, in the financial services space, you know, sort of an alternative to traditional banking. And, and the idea at the time, we were looking at all our peers at the GSB and, and looking at the loan rates they were paying and, and looking at their career pr- prospects and opportunities and saying, look, there's something not right here that, that these folks should, you know, they're better credits than, than the rates that they're paying. There's an opportunity here. You know, shouldn't we be able to get alumni to invest in a fund to help students out uh, and give them a leg up when they come out of school? And that, that was the original genesis behind SoFi. Got it. So then what, what happened after? So um, one of the one of the interesting challenges and and you know one of the stories about SoFi. So we we launched the business uh, originally focused on uh, Stanford Graduate School of Business, but very quickly expanding out to other MBA programs. And we had some good early traction on getting alumni to invest in funds that would provide capital for these loans and, and so forth. And it was an interesting experience in that um, one of my early seed investors had come to me. And we had done a Series A. I shouldn't call it a C, but but uh, one of my one of my Series A investors came to me and said, "Look, 
yeah, I think this is a really interesting business, but I think we need some significant capital to hypercharge it. So let's go to Japan and let's raise a bunch of money. And we went to Japan and and we pitched, you know, several of the large investors there and, and came back with what we thought was a pretty significant term sheet. Uh, you know, I remember sitting in the, the Tokyo airport looking at it, it was a hundred million dollar investment. And I kept thinking they meant yen, not dollars. And so I was trying to recalibrate, make sure it was actually a hundred million dollars. And yeah, I came back to the U.S. and I said, look, it, it looks like we've got $100 million of capital. I think we should start lending and opening up um, the refinancing of student loans, which was a product that we felt was super interesting. You know, if you refinance a mortgage, why shouldn't you be able to refinance a student loan? And we started uh, going through that process and refinancing those student loans. And uh, midway through, I think at that point, we'd committed probably about $60 million of capital to refinance the loans. Uh, the term sheet that we had ended up going away. And so we were in a situation where we had $60 million of loan obligations that we had to deliver into, and we didn't have any cash. And it created a very, very tense moment. Yeah. And we were able to pull together, um, you know, between baseline, RenRen, DCM, some of our early investors there, a um, little over $85 million of capital uh, that we we're able to use to deliver into loan obligations and to provide operating capital to, to um, accelerate the growth of the company. And it, it was a really good experience to go through because it, it gave us a lot of understanding in terms of, you know, one, just how fickle the, the venture space is that you can't commit you know, until you have the money. Don't don't expect that the money's there. Um, but also just some of the dynamics around, um, you know, how to manage investors, how to manage your own cap table. I think we 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 didn't approach the original cap table in SoFi very prudently, and it required some relatively painful adjustments as we were building out the business, and you know just a lot of lessons learned on that front. So, what do you mean with the um, capital structure? Maybe maybe the um, the folks listening, you know, can can learn a bit about this. Can you would you mind sure. expanding on that? Yeah, sure. So, so when you start a company and you're sitting in a room with three people, you say, well, let's just divide the equity up three ways, right? Or whatever the case might be. And, uh, that works in the very beginning because you're, you know, you have a, a an entity that's on, on day zero and the agreement is always like, we'll have the equity be commensurate with our contribution. We'll adjust it over time. You know, if you're doing more, I'm doing less Then then we'll make those adjustments. That's actually a very hard thing to do. And, and it introduces a lot of challenges. And if you don't structure your equity where you have a sufficient amount reserved for employees, for example, um, you're going to have to figure out how you're going to create that pool. And the challenge we had in our situation was, you know, we raised $85 million at a $100 million prevaluation, which, you know, on, on the surface, yeah, that, that's great. It's a Series B. It's a $185 million valuation. But it caused so much dilution, we didn't have a sufficient employee pool. And we went to our investors and we said, hey, uh, we need to create an employee pool. And if you create an employee pool post round, it's dilutive to your investors who come through. And, and the investors said, uh, you do need an employee pool. You're absolutely right. But it's going to come out of you and the founders. And so we had a very challenging discussion and the idea that, you know, generally you think when you get equity, you have it on a perpetuity, even when it's not vested. And the reality is, you know, there can be fluidity there, especially if you're in a circumstance like the one that we were in. And so we all had to kick in equity into an employee pool uh, to ensure that we had enough for um, for the folks that we needed to bring on to grow the business, but at the expense of our ownership. Wow. Wow. Because uh, for SoFi, I mean, you guys uh, raised quite a bit. How much uh, has the, and obviously you've, you've left SoFi to start your business now, but SoFi, how much has the company raised so far? 
Yeah. So, so we raised 1.9 billion wow. when I was there and they've raised another 500 million after that. And it, it, it's another lesson around capital, which is the, the challenge you have if you raise 1.9 billion is you, you ultimately want to be a price to earning, not a price to book business. And you want to, to do that, you need a very high ROE. And, and if you have 1.9 billion of E, you need a lot of R. And so, you know, it's, it's something to take into consideration. It's, it's, you know, our circumstance was somewhat unique in that, that, that billion dollar round that we did, that was the first billion dollar FinTech round. It was somewhat forced on us. And I've, I've talked about this publicly before, but, but, you know, we had talked to SoftBank, SoftBank wanted to invest. Um, we were looking for 200 million of incremental capital for the balance sheet. We felt it would accelerate growth. And, you know, Masa was very, very focused on it and said, look, I'm, I want to put a billion dollars in the company. And, you know, my initial reaction was, I, I don't need a billion dollars. How about 200 million? And, and it was clear that if I didn't take the billion, it was going to go to somebody else in the space, right? There was a billion dollars he wanted to put to work in that vertical. And so we ended up taking it and, and actually it was a, a significant advantage for us. So, you know, we were profitable when we took the money in and continue to be profitable as we executed through that. Uh, and it gave us the ability to withstand a lot of volatility in 2016 that hit the markets and where some of our peers struggled pretty significantly over that period. And so, you know, in hindsight, it was the right thing to do at the time. It, it, it seemed a little bit crazy. And, you know, certainly as you raise that kind of capital, you're, you're dealing on a first order basis with dilution, but on a second order basis with how am I going to generate a return to justify an ROE valuation, you know, a high price earnings valuation on this business, given so much capital. Got it. Got it. And obviously, you know, the, um, the amount of employees, you know, quite a, quite a bit of employees, how many employees? Yeah. When, when I left, I think we had 1300. Wow. So, uh, how do you, how do you go about leadership with, with so many employees? It's hard. And, and we struggled on that. And I, I struggled personally on it. Yeah. 1300 people, you have them spread across, you know, six different offices and, and trying to build consistency on culture, communication, transparency, uh, is, uh, is a struggle. And one of the, you know, one of the challenges that we had at SoFi when we built it out and, you know, and I'll say we, but it was really more me is, you know, we it, it we built it out so quickly and it grew so quickly that we never really had a chance to start with a grounding around what do we want the the values of this business to be how do we want the culture of this business to work and and so we the culture kind of by default was you know executed at all costs and and that's that can be great in short periods of time or short spurts but over the long term, it becomes untenable because you get a lot of, of individuals that are really good individual contributors, but might have problems in terms of fitting cohesively within a culture and within an organization. And, and that's exacerbated with the size of the, the workforce and the dispersion of the workforce. And so, you know, it was one of the things that when we started figure, we were very focused on, which was, you know, let's establish what we want in terms of values, how we want the organization to work and perform. Um, and what our expectations are of each other. And, and with the understanding that we're also going to have a distributed workforce and, you know, at SoFi, we, we had a, a problem up in one of our call centers in Hillsburg that you know, ultimately I have to take responsibility for, but, but it, it just underscores the, the challenge of having that dispersion when you don't have a strong, cohesive culture to tie everything together. And, and so at figure we've tried to address that. And I think we've done it very effectively. So let's talk about figure then. So you make the decision to move on. Uh, and let's talk about that and, and, and really bring a figure to life. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because Figure really started off as and still is a blockchain business that that we were looking at the blockchain and looking at the financial ecosystem and saying, boy, there's huge amounts of intermediation in this ecosystem. And and shouldn't we be able to use blockchain technology to to release some of that for the benefit of consumers, for the benefit of, of capital markets, for originators? And so we we went out to pursue a blockchain structure, and the the idea was to take distributed, trustless, and immutable characteristics of blockchain, and lever that or combine that with a registry, a uh, a ledger, and an exchange. And the first challenge that we had, you know, June, who runs our engineering, she was looking at, at blockchain technology and saying, "Look, I can't do this with Ethereum. I can't do this with Bitcoin. I can't do this with 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 Quorum or R three." Porta, I, I need to build something different because what we want to do and, and what we wanted to do as a first use case was securitization on blockchain. We wanted to originate a loan, finance it, securitize it and demonstrate that we could save, you know, our thesis was 90 basis points of value out of the gate. And so we ended up taking a, a, a version of IBM Hyperledger and she significantly modified that from an architecture standpoint to get it to scale and perform. And uh, built what we thought was was a very compelling platform, one that that again we thought could take ninety basis points of friction cost out of the process of origination through to securitization. And we pitched it to one of the investment banks, and and this was in early two thousand eighteen. And, and they looked at it and said, "There's no way that the world is ready for this. Let's do proof of concepts. This is ten years out." And we didn't want to wait 10 years to demonstrate the efficacy of this technology. And so we created Figure as a financial platform. So I, I didn't build another financial business because I, I was eager and enthusiastic to run back into the financial business. I did it because I used Figure as a way to originate assets on provenance, our blockchain, which then uh, forced the buy side to participate to come in and buy those loans on blockchain, which then got the sell side to agree to come in and finance those loans on blockchain. And kind of kick off the ecosystem. So we ended up building two companies where the first was our intent of what we wanted to deliver, a blockchain solution. The second was really a necessary component to drive adoption onto that blockchain because people weren't going to show up just for the just for the technology. Right. Right. So then so then how did you guys go about scaling this up? Because I know that you also raised quite a bit of money for this. Yeah, so uh, I'm not going to raise two billion again. At least, so I, should, I, I should. I shouldn't say that I'm not, because every time I say I'm not going to raise money, I raise more money. Some people think I like to raise money because I do it a lot, but I, I really don't. Right. Um, so, so we raised 120 million through the beginning of uh, through the first quarter of this year, and that that was what we needed to get to profitability for the core figure business and to drive adoption on provenance. And what's happened is, you know, we've done over $700 million of loans originate on blockchain. We've demonstrated not 90, but 135 basis points of value using that technology in what is a $3 trillion ecosystem. So you're talking about a massive TAM that's out there that, that you can deliver into. And we brought significant institutional adoption into the blockchain. So we have 12 stakeholders on provenance, firms like, like uh, Franklin Templeton and Experian. We, we have you know, partners like Jefferies, where we have a billion-dollar warehouse facility with them on provenance. We sell to 20 different counterparties, banks and, and institutions. And now Caliber is using provenance for HELOC origination. And we've got about a half a dozen mortgage originators behind them for both HELOC and First Lien Mortgage to leverage the technology. 
we're doing work on funds on chain, putting our our funds, but also uh, Colchis's hedge fund and other funds on the blockchain, and then doing some crazy work in Asia, where you know, like in, in Japan, we're working with MUFG on a potential municipal bond issuance on chain. We're doing some stuff in Singapore on the banking side, um, both traditional banking and Sharia compliant banking, and so there's a ton of stuff going on. And and what we did from a capital standpoint. We're very focused on unit economics. We're very focused on hitting profitability. And I remember sitting in a board meeting about six months ago talking about how important it was for me to hit profitability. And you know, my board was was looking at me and saying, Mike, the company's you know not even a year and a half old. Why do you care about this? And and you know, at the time everyone in the market was focused on revenue and growth and not so much around profitability. Having been through this a lot, you know, the very best thing about profitability to an entrepreneur is you no longer have reliance on the capital markets. And, and it gives you huge amounts of independence in terms of how you execute and, and autonomy in terms of, of, of where you execute. And so uh, October, we actually broke even from an operating basis, which, uh, you know, November, we probably won't, but December, we probably will again. And so it's bouncing around a little bit, but, but we're at striking distance now. And what had happened was one of our existing investors, Morgan Creek, had approached us about preempting a round. And they wanted to increase their ownership in the business, and uh, you know we we have been great, they've been great partners for us, and we wanted to give them a, a, a stronger voice, stronger voice in how we were doing things. But also, we had some strategic partners like MUFG that we wanted to open up and make room for, and so we ended up taking a hundred million dollar round uh, that pushed our total financing to a little over two hundred twenty five million. But I think what's what's interesting about this is the original term sheet that was put in front of us was at a higher value than the 1.1 billion pre that, that we took. And I actually pushed the value down. And a lot of people would say, well, why on earth would you do that? And and again, having gone through this a lot of times, one, you really want to build valuation cadence as an entrepreneur. So you want to feel that by the time you need to raise money again, you're going to have executed to a point where you can justify a valuation that's a significant premium over your last round. You want to keep that momentum going from an execution standpoint. And two, you, you know, you need to be pragmatic about the broader macro market. So obviously with some of the high profile challenges we've had on the IPO or, or not IPO side and some of the challenges in the private market, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs haven't been through the, the, the pain and peril and trials of a down round and and those things are are miserable experiences to go through so we wanted to make sure that we weren't overstretching that that we were taking a a valuation that we felt was reflective of where we were today and one where we felt a very high probability to execute into a significant premium you know should we raise money again either either primary or secondary it makes sense it makes sense so mike if you were to go to sleep tonight and you were to wake up, let's say in five years, you know, and you wake up in a world where the vision is fully realized of figure, what would that look like? So I think the the key on that figure will be a great financial platform. And hopefully it's an ubiquitous household name as a, as a financial solutions provider. But I think what, what we really want is to see blockchain uh, become ubiquitous within the financial ecosystem. And, and, you know, what, what we've realized in the blockchain is it's, Part of the value is disintermediating the existing rent-seeking, the, the custodians, the administrators, the trustees. Part of it is introducing efficiency to your own operations, so reduction of staffing expense and, and timing and, and delivery. And part of it is creating new product opportunities that weren't possible before blockchain. So, for example, we're doing a, a transaction in Asia where a lender's taking Indonesian auto loans into a Singapore SPV and 
creating fractionalized ownership interests and selling them through their wealth channel in another country. But you just wouldn't be able to do that with, without blockchain. And so I, I, I'd love to see in five years, rather than people saying I'm, I'm blockchain enabled or I'm leveraging blockchain, I'd like to see it be as ubiquitous as the internet where no one, no one today says I'm an internet company. It's just a de facto given. Yeah. Um, I, I, I know it's a short span, five years, but I'd love to see the adoption happen that fast. Got it. And one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show, Mike, is if you had the opportunity to go back in time and have a chat with your younger self uh, before, let's say, launching a business where you had the opportunity to give that younger self one piece of business advice, knowing what you know now, what would that be and why? Well, it'd be a challenging conversation because much younger Mike was a jackass. So to, <laughs> I don't know if much younger Mike would listen to older season wise Mike. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think there's a wealth of learnings that, that I've had the opportunity to, to experience. And, and I'm very appreciative that I've had that opportunity and continue to have opportunities. I think the probably the most important thing I would try to impress on younger me is the importance of building the right culture within an organization and hiring to culture, not to ability. And I think that, you know, I've seen the benefit of that at figure. I've seen what happens when everyone's rowing in the same direction and you have an organization that rallies behind itself. Uh, and it's just, it's just a huge impact. And, and so, you know, that's, that's probably the single most important piece of advice I'd deliver, whether I'd listen to it or not as younger me, I don't know, but I'd certainly deliver it. Really cool. Really cool. So for the folks that are listening, Mike, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, on LinkedIn, Twitter, either one. Amazing. Well, Mike, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Great. Thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.